podcast one production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in Sydney for this episode, and I'm in Melbourne. You see, I started chatting to Chad Reed a year ago, but we ran out of time to finish it, so we picked it up again at the AusX Open Supercross at Marvel Stadium. A lot's changed in his world in the past 12 months, so although you guys have had to wait a while, I promise you it's worth it. Reed is Australia's most successful dirt bike racing export ever, with two premier American or AMA Supercross titles and the most starts in its history. The secret to his longevity, the crossroads that he's reached and a whole lot more coming up. The journey for him began north of Sydney with the love of a different kind of horsepower. So I started out with a horse. And fern, is that right? Fern, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've done your research. I like that, Rusty. Um, so I had a horse fern. Uh, we were living in, in West Falls Inn and uh, I was three, three, three and a half. I have a memory um, that has stuck with me all the way through. And, and that was always, you always entered and got on a horse, a, you know, a particular way. And till this day, you'll never... And unless it's maybe a racing situation and I have to get on the right side, but I always will swing a leg over the bike from the left side and, wow. and, and get on the motorcycle on the left side. <laughs> and I don't know what you want to call that, whether that's just learning one thing and then sticking with it. And now it's become a, a superstition, but, um, yeah. So anyway, long story short, we, we had Fern, um, cousin Craig and my uncles had motorcycles, and of course, you know, three and a half year old me wanted wanted a motorcycle as well. So um, I had to make that big call: do we keep the horse? Do we, you know, do we get a motorcycle? And uh, yeah, I remember, um, you know, probably my strongest memory of actually the horse um, is is the the truck coming to pick it up, yeah. and uh, when we sold it, and then yeah, mum and dad bought um, you know PW fifty and. And, you know, I started in a, in a friend's yard, you know, going around witches' hats. Um, and then obviously then, because I, I was three and a half and you couldn't race until you were four. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I had to wait till my, you know, my fourth birthday to get, get behind the gate. Did it come naturally, the success? Did it, was it straight up or you, there were learnings? I mean, you, you know, you'd go on, you look at your, your CV and kind of... 97 really the the you know the Australian Junior Motocross Championship I mean you you really from my side that's when we started to really know okay this mm. kids arrived this is what's happening but in those early years did it come naturally what was that like so i was yeah like i would say it came naturally because it was never what i probably love about it and what i you know what makes me really proud of what what i achieved personally the family achieved um was more, and I put it down to that upper, you know, what do you call it, like the Hunter area, um, having access to 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 bush, really. I mean, because it, I mean, like you know, we call them tracks, but really, it was, you know, it was obviously not um, somewhere you paid to ride. It was just a track that we all built um, in the bush, and I was just, I think, lucky that I had a cousin five years older than me. So I always chased him. I was always like my 
how do you say it? Like my gauge, my my bar, my benchmark, my yeah. benchmark. Mm-hmm. That's the word I would use for sure. The benchmark was always somebody who was five years older than me, mm-hmm. and and for me, I think about it now, and you know, even just right this second. But it's like it's more that moment, like. I never raced my competition or I never raced the local kids. Like I was always, I always watched, you know, I adored my cousin, you know, still today. Like I think he's, you know, like he's like my big brother. Um, and, and I just, yeah, like I just, I took to it. Everything he did, I analyzed it, um, you know, from when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, all the way until he went pro and then when I went pro um, I really felt that I was I got to see the playbook you know mm. and not many people have that opportunity of of getting to really see the playbook and see how that works um, and maybe even myself like I think I was beyond my years in the fact that I was a big sponge I was I was very aware of what was happening good or bad um, you know I seen when he started going into the pro and 16 17 18 years old you know the clothing he wears the girls coming around the drinking you know all those things and I I took them on and and I I watched it I observed it and and so I just think that yeah it's it's funny it's it, like when I think about it how how easy it was it was obviously there was a lot of work a lot of sacrifices that everybody talks about but none of those were real to me you know like at, at no point did I feel like I was sacrificing anything at no point did I feel like I was giving anything up um I was I was going racing my dirt bike and that was that was as easy as that I was winning races um but I wasn't jumping jumps like my cousin was doing so therefore I was disappointed and I wasn't doing this that my cousin was doing so then I was mad so that was always the benchmark for me and that was what what really dri- you know like really drove me to be better each and every day what i love and it's clear from this discussion and and i've had it with other athletes is the passion the obsession if you want to call it that and how it drives you did that mean that that school kind of completely took a back seat and it was it was it just you were absorbed in everything you could that was that was dirt bike related like the biggest thing for me and I get full reality on it now with having my own kids. Um, and I would say that my eldest son has the, you know, the, the, the thought process and, and the things that I, like, literally I see him and, you know, like whenever you're doing something that you ask from him, mm-hmm. the lights are on, but nobody's home. Mm-hmm. He's, he's elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that was me in school. Yeah. Um, so to see yourself in a mirror and you have to really think shit he's doing what I what I did you know like and it wasn't it wasn't that I didn't like school I love school um I hated missing school um I just I really didn't learn like I didn't I think that the public school system and how it works wasn't what made me tick mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so the, those school you know, like my mom and dad, obviously not educated, don't have, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like they obviously didn't go to university, didn't do um, things. So, so schooling definitely wasn't a priority in our house, um, but definitely was was always something that we were, you know, we were expected to go and do the things. But yeah, I don't know why. I just I didn't I didn't learn. I didn't take it on. Um, I didn't have an interest in it. And 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 nine times out of ten, my mind was 
elsewhere mm-hmm. and and it's hard obviously you know like i i talk to my child now and i'm you know i'm like hey you know like i just told you this or asked this oh you know and it's <laughs> like you and then it's like i have the light bulbs going off in my own head thinking wow like i was i was just like that, that you know that must be what i was like yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the titles in the, the late 90s and then even the 2000 australian supercross championship here was the was the dream to always go overseas or when did that whole notion of taking on the world first kind of kick in? So taking on the world really started 10, 11, 12. Mm -hmm. Um, More so when, you know, the the VCRs um, were coming, you know, becoming more popular and and a lot of the content out of the US was making its way to Australia. Um, so what did you do? You had VHSs that you recorded of all sorts of stuff. Didn't you? Exactly. Yeah. Just uh, and you know, and we were never financially, you know, lucky enough to be able to have mum and dad buying it or purchasing it. So it was always through a friend. Um, you know, I remember vividly. You know, like borrowing. You know, we had. You know, I had some friends that 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 raced and whatever and. It was funny because it was like the first time that you see they had everything, you know, access to everything, the best bikes, the best gear, the videos, the TV, all the cool stuff, you know, and here we are and I would be just so stoked to be able to borrow the video and and just and I would watch it. I swear I'd wear it out, you know. Um, And so that's where my real passion, my love for Supercross um, started burning, burning deep inside. And I was just like and, and the guy was Jeremy McGrath, you know, and so I'm just like. Like, I want to be like Jeremy, you know, and I just watched him and everyone's like, oh, you look and ride like him. And I never tried to do it. But I think that you watch it so much that you you just see it and you you almost just naturally do it, you know. So, yeah, it's from my earliest memories of 10, 11, 12. I just remember I'm, I'm going to go and race in America. And and I didn't have. I really didn't have reality of, oh, it was a 14-hour flight away. It was a country that was, you know, completely different than than Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, That was where American Supercross was and the tracks were awesome, the lights were cool and and that was was the path I was going to go and no one was going to tell me any different. I want to get to your world chapter in a minute and what you achieved overseas, but first let's tap into a bike in that period before you left this country that maybe you had a special attachment to? Was it the Peewee? Was it, as you and I record this podcast, we're in, we're in Kudos Bank Arena in Sydney where you, you had success as a youngster before you went overseas on a Suzuki from memory. Is there a bike that you've got a bit of a special place for in your heart from those early days? I would say like my, my memory of, uh, you know, like becoming old enough to understand, um, you know, when you're young, pre pro I feel like you just you get on it you ride it and good or bad you make it work and that's amazing and I wish that I had a lot of that in me now um, <laughs> but uh when you start going pro you you start you know you're you, you're not you know talent doesn't get you to the top anymore and, it, and it's it's work ethic it's the bike setup and so when I first started you know 98 um with Suzuki I was I was good but there's definitely things that I felt that 
like I struggled with when I was around equal competition. Mm-hmm. And so toward like, like what? So towards the end of 08, um, Suzuki had a conventional fork. They we all went to upside down forks in the late 90s, early 90s, maybe even early early 90s. Um you know, even Suzuki, and then suddenly Suzuki reintroduced uh, a conventional fork, and that was going to be the new thing. We're going, you know, whatever. And anyway, long story short, it it really wasn't any good, and I think it only lasted a year or two. Um, and then towards the end of '98, uh, before I uh, broke my leg, um, we got some some upside down forks, and immediately I just remember just like being able to do things on a motorcycle that that I had been really struggling with. Um, and then the new bike in ni- in '99 um, came with the upside down forks. So I I do remember um, breaking my leg and having that nine ten weeks off the bike, and when I came back. It was late in the season, so then you went right into like my first bike back was a brand new ninety uh, ninety nine, um, and so just immediately like that feeling of wow this motorcycle is 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 next level. It's better than what my old one was, and um, yeah, I went to uh, America. I did a race, did some testing, came back with the full head of steam. You know, won the Supercross Championship that year. Um, so I would say that that was my first my first like real feeling of thinking man i'm i know i'm better than this this feeling that i'm having i could i was too young and dumb to understand it but i knew and realized that something wasn't right um and then when they put the upside down forks on my bike it was like wow this thing's awesome you know so yes that would probably be be it in 2001 you head overseas and raced a, a factory kawasaki in the fim world motocross championships won a gp in the netherlands second in the title race first aussie to win a 250cc GP, uh, how satisfying was all that? And give us a sense of, of how much harder perhaps you found the competition. Did you find it harder? Um, <laughs> unfortunately, like now, it's it's so different to comment on that stuff now because I feel like at 36 years old, three kids, like I finally have perspective on life, you know. Um, but honestly, like at that point, like I was disappointed, you know, like it took me way longer than I thought to get on the podium. I only won run race, you know, like it was actually, yeah, I was happy and whatever, but you live so in the moment and, and you live and die by it's your first or last, you know, like there's no in between. And of course I was proud and I was, you know, I was excited for the, the, the kind of like where I started and where I finished, but ultimately you're you're a winner and i was used to winning and and i wasn't you know and um pichon was the guy who won the world title and he was really really strong and came in obviously with a full head of steam of you know coming off of a you know a lot of uh you know maybe two three years of of america so um yeah he was he was a tough one to figure out like just because he was so fast so strong he was european he was good at qualifying good at one laps I was terrible um so I had a lot to learn from that but like dropped the gate and and I felt like I was okay so um yeah though I today massively like I thought that was huge you know like I was I was the first one to go and and do that in a long time since Leesky and um be competitive be on a good bike be on good you know good people around me um to this day, I probably put it in as one of my single most enjoyable, fun um, learning experiences that I've ever had because it really was my first step 
onto a real factory bike. Um, and Europe is real factory, you know, although I've been factory and I've been fortunate in the US, when you go to Europe, it's legit. Like everything is works, you know, like I remember that was the first day that I ever, like they're like, oh, we're going to try, you know, cylinders. And I'm like, not like, a, okay, we're going to bolt a cylinder on there and you either, you know, like you're pretty much like that's your choice. Mm-hmm. You know, like we had, I think there was like eight engines, three different chassis and I'm like why are we testing these chassis you know like they're all green they all look the same to me you know <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a massive eye opener for me and um, and that experience I wish that you could I wish there was iPhones back then and, and, and probably more than anything that I had the perspective that I have today because I think it would have been massively cool to have that you know content but it's it's, a, it's you know burnt into my brain for sure I remember a lot the AMA is seen um, as the as the pinnacle. The following year, you moved to America. Give us a sense of how that came together, and and perhaps how much that that year in Europe helped open that door. I mean, he was this kid who not all that long ago was watching VHSs and dreaming of this, and now within a very short period of time of leaving Australia, it's you're about to embark on on that that chapter. Yeah, the crazy thing was is. Uh you know, my year in Europe, like it had to be done. Um, 99, I went and I, and I did quite well. I showed promise. I showed speed. Um, yeah, I was riding on a Suzuki. Roger DaCosta didn't want anything to do with me. Um, I remember at the time, Steve Butler, who is, uh, now basically Yamaha's still to this day, actually is Yamaha's R and D in charge of R and D on all the new models and everything like that. He was the Yamaha, um, factory team manager. Um, he was there for a long time. And I remember like trying to, you know, pull the Australian card. Hey, you know, like this is this Aussie kid He's doing real well. And I didn't necessarily represent myself, but you know, like other people, and it never got traction, you know, like I never was able to make that, like that step to, to America. So then going to Europe, um, and then the funny thing about Europe is, is I was, I was the third guy that, that got the phone call. Um, Andrew McFarlane was the one who they really wanted, um, but he'd already signed a ride um, for Yamaha in Europe. Um, and then Michael Byrne got, you know, the kind of the core slash, you know, like they were interested in him. He wanted to go to America. He had an opportunity. He was friends with some, uh, with Jeff Emig and stuff. So I kind of was like, okay, well then this kid's pretty good too, you know? Um, so for it to play out the way it has and, and, you know, here we are today, it, 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 it was quite an experience, you know, like I felt like I embraced it. I, you know, jumped at the chance and, um, for me what I laugh about is you know people talk about dollars and cents and these things and it's like I honestly think maybe the first 10 contracts that I signed on a factory contract they were pretty much like I knew where I wanted to be I knew where I was going um, and where I wanted to go and as long as that was you know ticking those boxes the number on the salary didn't mean anything you know though the number grew and it grew and and all that but I was never motivated by like oh hey well you know, you're offering me this. Can I beat you up and get this? It was just like I was thankful the whole time, and that's probably what I what I noticed the most from nowadays. <laughs> Upside down motorcycle forks or inverted forks generally have more overlap than conventional forks. And the more overlap there is, the more rigid the fork. 
just like an extending ladder. You effectively bypassed the 125 class here in Australia and pretty much went to the premier 250cc category. But when you went to America, there was that initial kind of step into the 125s to to really get that pathway that you wanted, wasn't there? How did you find that? Yeah, it was funny because I, I want to say I only raced... 125 never like I never made that transition like from juniors to 125 I went straight into the 250 and then I did a couple of the indoor um back then it was popular that the you know the the factory guys would ride each class um so I thought that that was cool and then but I really struggled like right from when I went from 60 to 80 I struggled always going back and I always hurt myself. I always overrode the smaller bike. Um, so then dad always pretty much as soon as I went from the smaller bike to the big bike, ready or not, like I kind of had to drop the little bike because I was da- it was dangerous for me. So when I did that here in Australia and, and not racing the 125 and then going to Europe, I mean, I was a second in a world championship in, in the 250 class. And then suddenly nobody will take me on to ride the 250 in in the US, a bike that I was proven to be good on, um, but yet they wanted, you know, like their system is, is you start at the bottom and you work your way up and um, not necessarily that I disagree with it, but, you know, I was already a two-time Supercross champion in Australia. You know, my first rookie season, I was second in a world championship. You know, I kind of felt like there was enough credentials to yeah but they didn't no one would take me at all um so yeah i had to drop down and luckily when i dropped down i it was a 250f at the time so it was their second year i believe um so i struggled a lot with that bike because obviously that was very very early generation of the four stroke and four strokes back then they weren't fuel injected they were carbureted and they always had like a hesitation and they were really 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 bad i was scared shitless of the bike um but luckily enough for me it had a little bit more like weight to it a little bit more torque obviously than than what a 125 did so i transitioned a little bit better back to the four stroke than i did dropping all the way down to a 125 um so yeah, I mean, I got really lucky. I won six of seven races to be, you know, champion in my first year, and um, so yeah, that was it was a learning curve, and and I, I was vocal about like because obviously early on I I was you know winning races and Yamaha really needed a new fresh blood in there, um, but then you know like my biggest competition right away was was James Stewart, um, so my first year, his first year, um, obviously I had you know a a lot of what at that point three years of pro racing (laughs) under my belt but um but a lot of the things I had to learn um you know things that I wasn't used to I guess like being you know being the the guy that's a little different um in the fact that I was Aussie against Americans. Um, the media attention nobody prepares you for that part you know like when you go to America and there's just a different like when you're doing well you know that like I've I'd always experienced people that didn't like you or were jealous of you or something like that but the, the, the I'd never really experienced media like putting words in your mouth or picking words or you know like picking your words 
you might say all these things and then the one thing that could slightly be swayed negative and then suddenly using that as the headline um, was something that I really had never really experienced. I hadn't been around it and it, it, it bummed me out and it like put me on my back foot a little bit. So like, although I would have loved to have gone to the big bike class, I was, I was happy to go and like, I guess succeed really, really fast to the point where I experienced my, my, my learning curve was massively steep. Um, and I think that that prepared me much better for the next year. I think had I have gone and been successful on a 250 um, and then, you know, had to do that against Ricky and those guys, I think it would have been that much more intense and in, in whether or not, you know, you can never predict it, but you never really know whether you, do you handle it? Do you crumble? Do you, you know, I don't know what that was. So, um, yeah, it was different. It's probably hard in a podcast, Mike, to give a, a Supercross 101, but for people that, that haven't experienced it before, I mean, you're talking about arena-style layout stadiums. Uh, each track is is built and, and they're a little bit different. It's it's perfect for fans in, in so many respects. But what are the fundamentals to riding it? I mean, you lit up before when you're talking about, you know, carburetors and things not being right. So, I mean, there there are some key things that you need to be able to succeed in this in this domain, this environment, don't you? Yeah, so the biggest thing is, is like, I guess what I love most about motorsports and just as a general rule of thumb is motorsports whether it's two-wheel, four-wheel, Formula One to NASCAR to, you know, to supercars, it, it, it all takes the same mentality. It's, it's about it's how you think, it's the people around you. Um, the team makes such a big difference. And I think that when you're, when you're young and dumb coming into, into a, you know, but you've got talent, um, I really believe that how you uh, come into a team and who you have around you makes such a big difference, you know. And like through my career and, and the things and the steps that I did, it, I think it, it paved me, you know, like it paved the way in a, in a good way. Like I, I, when I went to the, you know, Yamaha in the U.S., it was basically they got rid of Jeremy to, re, you know, like I replaced Jeremy, my hero, I replaced him pretty much. And, you know, and I saw that and I seen how they treated him and, and how the, the changing of the guard happened. Um, and then on the flip side, I completely witnessed it from Jeremy's point of view because I was at Yamaha again in 2016 and I seen and experienced, you know, Cooper Webb coming in and, and basically, you know, taking the you know, taking the reins from me and being the new, the new superstar. Um, and I, so it was, it was very interesting to, to live and see both sides of that for sure. But yeah, Supercross is, the big thing is, is it, it comes down to, you know, not only you don't have to be, it's not just that you need to be endurance athlete or an explosive athlete or, you know, it's like you have to be the fittest out there. You have to be the fastest out there. You have to be the most consistent out there. Um, so it really takes this a combination. And I think that that's what makes our sport so unique. Um, we as riders have so much input um, that can be good and bad. Um, and depending on who you're working with and the team and how they steer you, um, it, it really makes a, a big difference. In 2004, mate, AMA Supercross champion, mega, mega achievement. Uh, and the memories I would imagine for you are still quite vivid now. What was it? It was the YZ250, I think, for young Yeah, 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 yeah. The y, yeah. Man, that thing was amazing. I mean, uh, right away in, um, you know, 2003, uh, I won 
eight or nine races to Ricky's six races, I think. So, um, you know, brung it down to the wire, got seven points. I think I fell short. So going into 04, um, one one big component for us is we got a new front fork and it was just game changer. It, it made such a big difference on that bike then. And um, I remember the first time I rode the bike, um, I was like, you know, just that moment where you're out there and you're riding and, you're, and it just, it sinks in. And right then and there, I think it was October, um, you know, maybe even earlier, September, October. Like I said, I, I can be, I can be Supercross champion on this bike, you know? Um, yeah. And then it's, you know, like, yeah, long story short, I think, uh, I won 10 races out of 16 and was on the podium, um, every weekend, uh, I think my worst finish was one third and I think I had three th- seconds. Um, so amazing, amazing year. And, and m- actually I just recently built that bike last year. So, uh, I have one, have one, you know, it's a replica of my bike. Is that something you won't part with? How kind of specialist that whole deal? I mean, I've, I've seen some of this stuff on Instagram. I wanted to talk to you about it later in the podcast. There are some that, you know, you, you've kept clearly along the way that you that you cherish, don't you? Yeah, and that bike in particular has has deep, deep meaning. You know, they always say your first is your sweetest and, and nicest one, and um, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, the championship was obviously icing on the cake, the bike and and just that point in my career was such an amazing feeling you know and um i was really fortunate to have um actually an engine in australia um that 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 didn't it got returned it must have had some gas or you know some fuel fumes on it um and then it got returned to uh my parents house and then um, long story short, pretty much soon thereafter, we all switched to four strokes. Um, and then we all just forgot about it. So basically it sat in my mom and dad's garage in a box, um, for 16 years. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah. And so I brung the engine back to the U S and they let it in. And, and then I just basically, you know, like I, as far as like when you're talking two strokes, the engine is the core, you know, yes. like these days it seems like, um, engines pretty simple, but the, the electronics is really with the brains of the bike now. Um, so yeah, when you start and you have the full core of the bike and you can build everything outside of that. Um, so yeah, it's 95% the real deal, um, of stuff that I had laying around. So it really is something that means a lot to me. And, um, I got to ride it a little bit last year and the, the feelings flood back you know really quickly 22 it is your signature your, your your number for people that aren't aware how did that come about what is the connection and 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 uh, you know share more of that story yeah there's not really a and a real story to it other than um the way the numbering system works in in the u.s is um you know as my rookie year i was 103 um I was second in the motocross, third in the motocross championship. So then I was able to have a career number, which I don't remember what that number was. Um, But Sebastian Tortelli um, and Grant Langston also had career numbers. And I don't remember if it was Tortelli or if it was Langston. For some reason, I feel like it was Langston. Um, Always raced with triple one back then. And his career number that he was given was, was 22. And, and basically I asked, Hey, like, are you going to use 22? And he's like, no, I want to stay with my triple one. And, um, and I just thought it was cool because, you know, Jeremy being my hero, 
whenever he didn't have a one on his bike, he always had a two. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, well, maybe two twos are better than one two. <laughs> um, and so basically that's where the 22 came from. And, and it's, yeah, obviously it's become, you know, famous to me and, and it's just become my number. So the, yeah, that's, that's the story behind it. In the almost kind of 20 years on the, the very peak of the international scene for you, bikes have changed a lot. I mean, we've two-stroke to four-stroke, all kinds of, of development. Are there, are there key things that sort of stick out for you in, the, in the, bike, the bike development where you think, you know, man, that was a bit of a game-changer or, the, the, you know, this thing here has been really significant? You, you know, they've all been, they've all been big changes, um, but the biggest thing for me is... Uh, <sighs> Every, so many things have evolved and so many things have changed um, but the core to what is successfully winning races and championships today hasn't changed you know it hasn't wavered um, but the bikes have changed it like I feel like everybody talks about the separation of you know back in the you know people always came in and, and they executed better than others in the fact that like the RJ days, the David Bailey days, and then, you know, going into Jeremy's dominance. Um, and then obviously Ricky, James and I being more current, being such a big step ahead. And I always look back that the 252 stroke to, you know, extract every little thing out of it was, wasn't easy. And it took uniqueness to, to do that. Um, Nowadays, the four strokers, like all the gaps that we used to have, you know, like say, like say, if you put the three of us in one category and we're here and, you know, a step down or step two steps down is everybody else, um, or the Wyndhams and the Lusk and things like that. And then there's another jump down to, you know, whoever, all those little gaps now are, are, are I think, filled by how amazing the motorcycle is you know the four stroke although it's heavier it's faster um it now stops and goes better than anything that's ever been at least anything that i've ever experienced um they're becoming easier to ride like they were a handful once upon a time now they're you know they are they're a little bit more challenging to ride um and yeah somehow like with electronics just like MotoGP. Um, whenever you're having a problem, I remember once upon a time the biggest thing was is oh you throw it you know throw some gearing at it you know change the gearing. Now I couldn't tell you the last time that I changed gearing. Um, as soon as you have any issues, you just go straight to the engine uh, engine department with electronics, and it's just all done electronics now. So that's the biggest thing. You know, you as a rider you used to have the you literally had to feel it with your hand and like when a two stroke was too lean or too rich and you had to relay that to the mechanic otherwise your bike would just run like crap now it's like oh yeah my bike's doing this and literally the guy goes over he plugs a computer in he asks you because he gets a now they all have gps and they see you know where the bike's at on the track and he's like well where's it doing it you tell him hey it's doing it here and they narrow it down and you go out and then they nail it. You know, it's just like, okay, well, that was easy. It, I didn't even have to think about it other than telling the guy what, what I was feeling and, and where I was feeling it. So that's probably the biggest change that I've seen is, in my opinion, two-stroke to four-stroke was a big change. The biggest change that I've experienced is carburetor to fuel injection. Uh, that evolution is massively changing and ongoing. 
That's the end of part one of my chat with Chad Reed. Make sure you check out part two where we talk injuries, the tough decision to call time on the two-wheel competition that he's done for so much of his life and the new interest that's keeping him awake at night. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.